The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the huge week for your money, earnings, CPI, the much debated tech trade, which has worked awfully well lately. Some pressure today and big time. We'll debate all of that with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Steve Weiss, Jim Labenthal, right here on set. We have Joe Terranova and Liz Young. Let's go check the market, see what we're doing at 12 noon in the east. It's the NASDAQ down about 2%. Dow's giving back a little bit today. S&P's down 1%. 10-year note yield is at 298, and you see the Russell off by a little less than 2%. Point, you know, we're, we're focused on the NASDAQ a lot, but Liz, I, I want you to assess kind of what's at stake this week. CPI Wednesday, earnings from the banks, Dow's about 5% up from the June lows, S&P 6%, NASDAQ 8%, as is the NASDAQ 100. I think what's at stake this week is last week's rally. And we had this brief reprieve in the face of all of these headwinds where the concern was then, okay, we might be going into a recession. We might get a Fed that's not as aggressive. Then we got to the end of the week. Jobs numbers were great. And we decided again that the Fed is still on course. Now this week we're back to the rate story. We're going to continue to see volatility until we get some of these heavy hitters towards the end of the month and until we get confirmation that earnings is either better than we thought or that CEOs start to guide down, which I think they're going to do. And we're going to continue to see pressure there. Hard to overstate what's at stake, right? I mean, the CPI earnings, CPIs could be more front and center, just given what the narrative is around inflation, maybe having peaked, and uh, what all that means for the Fed. I think after Friday's jobs report, you can't expect that the Federal Reserve is, is going to pause or pull back. I think the aggressive tone. Not yet. Well, Not yet. I, I don't know. I don't know that one. You see, I, maybe I, not anytime soon. Right. I, I agreed on that. But I, I, I listen, I still think there is a clear economic contraction that's unfolding right now. And I don't think investors should expect that the Federal Reserve is going to respond to that. I think the Federal Reserve is going to continue to be aggressive in the measures. And I think really this week, largely is going to tell us how much longer we are going to have to wait for this overall malaise that's in the market to continue. Uh, to me, the thing that's most troubling about today is the dollar. The dollar, once again, yeah. higher. Well, that's probably why the Nasdaq is under the kind of pressure it is, too, right? Yeah. There's been all this conversation about what the weaker euro, higher dollar are going to mean for tech earnings in, in particular. Microsoft, got Salesforce, Microsoft, Salesforce, they've already told you, Hewlett Packard, right? So that's that's going to be, I think, the, the, the narrative uh, for the upcoming earnings season is the currency headwind. You got a lot of in very interesting tech calls today. and We're going to get to some of those in just a minute. But Weiss, uh, you know, tech is where I want to stay for the moment. And, mm -hmm. and this move out of the cues that you made on, on Friday, you saw the writing on the wall, just said the tech trade cannot continue to to advance at the pace it, it seemed to be going. 
Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. You know, I had stated my intentions. I got rid of three quarters of it, I believe, on Thursday and then the, the remainder on Friday. And it just I saw binary events coming this week, which are CPI and PPI. And sure, you know, if you get low numbers, you could see the market explode to the upside. I think that'll be short term, a reason to sell it. But I just didn't want to take binary risk on those positions. They turned out to be decent trades, not phenomenal trades. As I'd mentioned, I got into the queues late. I got into Thursday morning and not even at the, at the lowest point. So with trades, you just have to be quick in this market because the volatility is so great. And in terms of tech, you're right. I mean, while multinationals will be impacted as we, you know, whether it's a Procter Gamble, et cetera, most of the uh, tech comes from outside of the euro region. So it's not necessarily manufactured there. So as they get a weaker currency, tech becomes much more expensive. So versus some of the multinationals that have the other multinationals I referring to, like Procter & Gamble mm -hmm. or even a Honeywell, they have facilities, manufacturing facilities in region. So while there'll be some impact from currency, it doesn't necessarily affect them as much. But look, you're going to see this volatility. Again, we've got that surprise where you got a major decline in yields on the 10-year, yet it's doing nothing to lift uh, the technology trade today. So the variables are tough to keep keep track of but i still have that downward bias yeah you got yields are down about three plus percent almost across the curve uh so that brings me to labenthal farmer jim uh as i said there were a number of interesting calls to go through today uh among the price target cuts apple to 174 from 199 nvidia to 235 from 250 amd to 85 from 115 nxp which you own to 200 from 240 Tesla to 820 from 900. That's not even to mention a downgrade essentially to sell for Meta by Laura Martin at Needham. But what about these price target cuts? It's like a reality check, right, Jim? Yeah, well, is it a reality check or a response to reality of where prices are? So, you know, most of those price targets are still pretty healthy gains from where shares are right now. I think the analysts just, you know, they have to realize, okay, my targets prior to today were too high, and I've got to produce some more reasonable assumption of where they can end up. So, you know, Apple from the, from where it is now to 174, good 20% plus gain. Uh, what was the other one? NXP, I own that obviously. You know, that would be a 30 percent gain to that uh, target right now. I, I think the, the bigger issue that I have in tech or the bigger question I have is what's really going on at the fundamental level? And I would point to the semiconductors. I know we want to cover this later, so I won't go too deep, Scott. But, you know, you've got disparate views from Micron, which gave very ugly uh, guidance two weeks ago. And then last week you had Samsung Electronics being pretty rosy. So where does the real answer lie? And so for a stock picker like me, this week is important because you've got Taiwan semi-producing results on Thursday morning, and that will help answer the question. Now, that, that question, though, is in the short term. In the short term, of course, we're expecting earnings to slow down here, probably come in worse than expectations, the question being by how much. For me, Taiwan Semi will help answer that question, but I also want to point out that long term, I look to 2023 and I see the estimates should stay intact because of supply chain onshoring and infrastructure spending. I'm going to stay consistent on that topic. So this malaise, which I think Joe referred to, maybe it was Liz, it will stop when the Fed pivots. That's probably a couple of months away. Yeah, but 
see, I, I have a pro- I have a problem with that view. I just don't. And, and as Joe was saying, you've got this economic slowdown underway. I'm thinking to myself, how could we have so diametrically opposed views on on where we are in the economy? Joe says we've got this slowdown underway. The data suggests that Joe is correct in that view. And then there is you who argues this completely other point, who wants to buy cyclical stocks over growth. And, and I just don't I just don't get it as if the, the Fed's going to pivot, as you suggest. And all of a sudden, the economy is just going to roar ahead. They're going to pivot yep. because if they pivot at all, well, if they're going to pivot at all, it's because the economy has forced their hand by being too weak. Scott, you're, you're making your point, so let me just let me answer. I understand, but I'm, I'm reporting the facts here, okay? The supply chain onshoring is very real. There are increasing reports of more factories being announced, more mines being dug no. here in the U.S. And by Jim, the way, in Europe as Jim, well. You, yep. I, I still don't, I don't buy this argument. You, you, you are suggesting that the announcements of new factories and supply chains automatically put supply chain onshoring in play now. No. No, uh, Scott, I'm going to I'm going to continue to answer your question Please, is, is no. point that I'm going to continue to answer. What I'm trying to tell you is that for all the negative news, there is also positive news that is being ignored. And so you ask me, how can the cycle continue? I look at the labor report and OK, I will admit that labor is a lagging indicator. But for goodness sakes, there isn't a hint of a crack in it. There just isn't. Um, whether it's labor report itself or whether it's it's the jobless claims. And honestly, you actually want these to get a little worse to take the Fed's uh, you know aggressiveness away. But the point that I'm trying to make here, Scott, is that we've been focused on the negative for all of the last six months. There are positives out there. You just have to wait for them to come through. The malaise will end when the Fed pivots. And for that, you're looking for inflation to come down. Look at where Arbob is. Look at where gasoline futures are. They're 20% off in a month. That matters. So, Joe, housing market is rolling over. And I mean, it's like not just like rolling over. It's like jumping off a cliff uh, over. Goldman, to Jim's jobs strength, which, you know, yes, the, the numbers were strong. Lagging indicator. They cite the household survey, uh, which Jan Hatzius at Goldman says the slowdown that we need is now well underway. He points to that survey, which shows the labor market is, in his words, sputtering. Oh, I, I, mean, I could go I could go to other. Well, I think the most two. important place to look is real estate and to look regionally and see that you're seeing homes finally beginning to have price deterioration. You're seeing rents coming down. But Jim mentioned cyclicals, and I think this is this is important to touch on strategically. I, I respectfully disagree. I think this is actually the environment to go back and look at quality growth, because I don't think if you are a cyclical investor, the Federal Reserve is your friend here. The Federal Reserve never wanted the Roaring Twenties to happen. By the way, the Roaring Twenties didn't happen, right? That was coming out of the pandemic. That's where we here comes the Roaring Twenties. Never happens, okay? Federal Reserve doesn't want that to happen. The Federal Reserve wants to dampen demand. They well, want to would take. Have, it would have wanted it to happen if it didn't wait too long to deal with inflation, which happened. Agreed on that part. But where we are right now, it, it is clear to me that their objective is to make sure that any form of accelerating demand, they're going to step on that demand right away. They're going to step on the speculative excesses. So I, I know Jim's looking for a pivot. Before we get to some form of pivot, I think we just have to kind of understand. Where's the terminal rate ultimately going to lie? 
The cost of capital is a moving target. Am I ultimately going to know what the finality is going to be and what the cost of capital is going to be in my business? I don't know that so, answer. So here's the thing. Um, Jim's not the only one who is looking for a Fed pivot. There's Tom Lee is looking for a pivot later in the year. The Wharton professor, Jeremy Siegel, is looking for a pivot later in the year. My issue with part of what Jim said is that Jim says the economy is going to take off when the Fed pivots. I could see the stock market. Hold on. I could see the stock market taking off when the Fed pivots. But the Fed's going to pivot if the economy is weak and forces its hand to pivot. That doesn't mean the economy is going to take off. The market may take off in advance of the economy re-accelerating, which may be in a recession at that point in time. Scott, I, I certainly see your point. OK, I'm not I disagree with it, but I see it. And the reason that I disagree and you've touched on some of this, you know, the Fed funds future market now has the Fed peaking at three point four, maybe it's three and a half percent, depending on what day you look at it. You know, I think they're going to do 75 basis points here at the end of the month. Why wouldn't they? It's priced in 50 basis points in February. You get a couple of 25s after that. and You know what? That's where the Fed funds futures market is saying it's going to peak. And the point that we all know is that you know, two months from now, when you've when you've got those next two moves, actually, that's three months. But when you get those next two moves out of the way, the bulk of the Fed's heavy lifting is beyond is behind it. And I don't think that the bears are giving full attention to the power of this supply chain onshoring. And maybe I sound like I'm just repeating myself, but it's a powerful force that's gonna have a lot of industrial activity, a lot of financing activity, a lot of demand for labor. So, you know, if people are getting laid off at Peloton and Carvana and all these sort of things, there's jobs for them to go to. I, what I'm not buying here, just to be clear, is I'm not buying a recession where people are out of work and not consuming it. I'm just not buying it. I don't see it. Jim, I'm not. I'm not saying hey, that's what this is. Can I? Can, can I just real yeah, quickly? Yeah, then after. Yeah, Weiss, just, go just real after quick, Joe. Jim. You're looking for a pause, not a pivot. A pivot implies that they're going to reverse policy and actually begin to lower rates. You want the no, pause, yeah, correct? No, you're right, Joe. Joe, you're right. Okay. You're right. A pause, and I think you'll agree with me, but I shouldn't put words in your mouth. A pause, meaning okay. we're peaking by the end of this year. Agree. I, I mean, disagree with me. I want to hear back from you. I think the market will will gain a hell of a lot of wind Don't worry. From that. I, I got somebody who's going to disagree with you right now. It's Steve Weiss. <laughs> Go ahead, Weiss. Yeah, it, it, uh, Jim, look, I, I appreciate your continued bullishness and, and your rose-colored glasses, which you never seem to take off. But the reality is, is that the jobs report shows incrementally slowing. They revised down May and they revised down April. And the pace of job growth, and you could tell me, well, it's still at a ridiculously high level, and I'll give you that, but it's got to start somewhere to come down, and markets are directional, number one. Number two, the economy doesn't turn on a dime. The Fed doesn't stop or lower their their rate of, e of tightening, and all of a sudden the market snaps back. That's just not real world, never has been, and never will be. And you're coming off what you're benchmarking let, let me address to this. Let me address free let money. Finish, I, let, let, me finish, Jim, let me finish, Jim. Let me finish. What you're benchmarking to is an economic expansion if you take out the fall off from the pandemic, which was a blip and a V-shaped recovery in in the economy if you take that out you're on the longest economic expansion in history 
anywhere and there's going to be a reversion to the mean and before you revert to the mean you overshoot that's just the way it goes and by the way it's in the feds playbook even though they don't say it that tightening they like to see markets come in and the markets coming in so when you get back to a normalized market you're talking about a year from now hopefully but the damage is going to happen, and the damage to the consumer is something we've not seen in 40 or 50 years. So forget it. It's just not going to happen anytime soon, we barely... and that's okay. And I understand, you, and I understand right. your bias, and you come by it honestly, but it's not real world. Hey, what you, what, Steve, what are you getting paid by the word? Okay, I got it. All right? Let me, let me respond here. What we should all be if terrified of you're getting paid by here... the word, Jim, it's at a discount to your words, because you spoke forever. <laughs> So let's not go there. All right, moving on. What we should be terrified here of is job losses, okay? If you travel, I don't care if you're at an airport or on a highway, there are people all over the place. You go out to dinner, there's people all over the place. What we need to be afraid of is people losing jobs, not going out of the house, not traveling, not consuming. That's what we should be afraid of. With the market's down 20% year to date, that's okay. pricing in that people are gonna lose jobs. And frankly, not only are they not losing <laughs> jobs, but the job openings are still high. You call They're me- almost at a two to one. Hang on, you spoke for five minutes, just hang on. You, we're almost at a two to one ratio of job openings to unemployed. Before the pandemic, that was 1.25, and even that was high. Remember we were talking about we didn't have workers before the pandemic. The point being is that jobs are plentiful. At the end of the day, that's what matters to economic activity. It isn't that hard. Wow, that was me who, that was, yeah. that was <laughs> the judge who, who, yeah. who piped in there. Were you, were you yelling at me, Jim? You were no, so worked would, up, you thought that was wise. Come on, listen, this is a He's great discussion. Up. It's oh, a man. great, thoughtful discussion. <laughs> we we disagree, but it's fine. Right, but I mean, there you know. Scott, can No, hold on, Weiss. Because there's, hold on. Okay. Um, first of all, we've barely done any QT either. I mean, no one, no one wants to talk about that. That that I engine, do. that engine's just getting going. That increases in September. Yeah. So Morgan Stanley, talk about that. Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson says we've got unfinished business for the bear. Those are his words. Uh, whether we go into a recession or not, we still think the equity market is mispriced for the current PMI, interest rate, and earnings revision backdrop. We continue to think fair value is 3,400 to 3,500 okay. uh, and maintain that as our tactical base case. Evercore cites slower growth, lower earnings. They go to 4,200 on the S&P. Citi goes 4,200 on the S&P. Liz Young, um, why don't you opine on, on all of this? I, and, I dodged you know, bullets Jim until won't, now. Jim won't yell at you like yeah. he did me, but go ahead. Okay, so I think we're talking about a couple different things here. There's different speeds that this is going to happen at. And the market has already taken the lead on the speed of drawing down. The economy, this is going to be a slow grind lower. And as we've mentioned already, the labor market is one of the last things to turn. However, Jim, I want to re respectfully disagree with you on one of your points. There are cracks in the labor market. We've got challenger job cuts going up. We've got a slow increase in initial jobless claims, a slow increase in continuing claims. There's layoff announcements. I think that just continues to heat up. First, we need some of this earnings stuff to catch up. I see price targets coming down. Then earnings revisions come down. Then the economy follows. And a lot of it is moving lower. It's just moving lower at a slower pace. So if and when the Fed is satisfied that inflation has come down for enough months, I'm going to call that three consecutive months of month-over-month -month declines, then they might say, okay, no more 50 basis points, now we do 25. Yes, the market rallies on that. 
that still may not be enough to take care of inflation, in which case you have the risk in 2023 of a real pullback, a real recession that takes care of inflation. Very well said. Jim makes the argument, though, Jim, that there's nothing to see here, that the economy's booming because you go out to restaurants and you go to the airports and everything's packed. And then you look at, you know, we're all of a sudden onshoring all of the supply chains. We got no issues there. We're building factories everywhere. You've got the infrastructure spend. Drunk, drunken sailors are throwing $100 bills. Out of the, you are, you, you, there's like nothing to see here, is your argument. No, no, no. I, I mean, of course, there is something to see here. And the thing that we all see is where the stock market is with the S&P 500 down whatever it is, 19 percent uh, from the year to date high. So that is obviously something to see. The question is, what do we do from here? Um, and what I'm submitting to you, I understand. I read my, what Mike Wilson says. I read what Brian Rauscher at, at Fundstrat says. I, I understand the Bears argument. The point that I'm making is two things. One, it's ignoring the damage that's been done and two it's ignoring the positives um, and you know listen you mentioned quantitative tightening a second ago okay obviously that's a negative on the other side of the ledger is the improving tax receipts at the federal government level which is shrinking the supply of treasuries so a buyer is going down namely the fed just as supply is going down they're offsetting phenomenons I understand that, but one case seems like it's being made with facts, and a large part of your case is being made with fantasy. I don't think so, Scott. I think, I, now listen, I know you and I like to spar, and I like it too, okay? But I don't think it's fantasy. I don't think, number one, the jobs report, I don't think it's fantasy. I don't think the job opening a labor turnover survey versus the unemployed is fantasy. I don't think the semiconductor plants that have been announced, I don't think the lithium mines, the rare earth element processing facilities, the automobile plants, the battery plants, I mean, they're, they're factual. What, I don't Jim, I what are these opening? The are these opening comes. on Saturday? Is there like a ribbon cut? Are they no. like? Oh, that's, are we Scott, running through the Scott. doors on Saturday morning? Do I, what time do Scott, I need to we, be there, Jim? Because on, the way Scott, you speak you know, of the way you speak of it is that all of this is coming online next week. Scott, it's going on right now. Taiwan Semi's been building its semiconductor plant. It was the first one to announce it. That was about about a year and a half ago, and that was followed quickly thereafter by Samsung and Intel. These things are going on. So uh, last I, point quick, Jim, Scott, yeah, I, I, Joe, and then I got to go. Hold on, Weiss, I'll let you go after listen, the break. There, there's a go lot ahead. of things on a daily basis you can change in your life. The one thing you can change is time. I've been talking about this forever. I think it's why it's so frustrating is because this is the classic you recovery. And we haven't seen this in decades. This is a you. You have to wait for clarity. You're not going to get a V-shaped recovery anytime soon. And the probability is that the S&P is just going to vacillate on either side of 4,000, maybe dip to 3,500 for an extended period of time. That's frustrating, but that's what this is. All right. Jim's got like some backup coming after the break because our halftime headliner is up next. BMO's Brian Belsky. He's Mr. Bull. We're going to get his take on the financials ahead of earnings this week. He'll have to opine certainly on where the markets are, too. We're back into On the Half. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. 
B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back. Let's bring in our headliner now, BMO's Brian Belsky joins us now. It's nice to see you again. Welcome back. Thanks for having us. Great to be back Let, here at the NASDAQ. Let's get your view first. Uh, I don't know if you heard the prior segment and the conversation there, but let's get your view on the market here, uh, given the fact that we've had a nice little bounce from the lows again. Well, shocker. We're aligned with uh, Farmer Jim. And, uh, you know, something that told Liz you. said, <laughs> told you, something that Liz said um, is really the, the really instrument slash mechanism of investing stocks, lead earnings, which lead the economy. So the stock market's already told you that we're in a bear market, maybe a recession, maybe not. We've said on air that it's almost a moot point, so therefore we actually agree with Mr. Wilson uh, at, at Morgan Stanley. Now the earnings period, obviously you and I have been sparring about our earnings number at 245. I actually don't think it's going to be too far off. And again, here, here we go. Let's start arguing with me on that. I don't have then to. I'll finally, let, I'm letting you make your case. Why are you, then, why are you then, getting so jumpy? Just well, make then, it. No, 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 no. And then finally, the economy. So by the time the economy, if it recesses, the market's going to be up. Either you look back at, at, at post-recessionary periods, 15 to 20 percent toward the second half of the, of the recession in terms of the stock market. In terms of the economy, and we were talking a lot on, on air here. You were talking a lot on air about uh, analyst stock prices. What's more interesting, actually, is if you take the analyst downgraded stock price to see actually what their implied upside still is. If you take a look at their implied upside from some of these stock prices being taken down, it still looks like if just back of the envelope, I was, I was kind of looking at some of the stocks you're entering or talking about, 25 to 30 percent. Well, that still to me is a buy. But on the earnings front, Scott, let's talk about this. Mm -hmm. So if you take a look at S&P 500 earnings since March, uh, they've only gone down about 1.5% for the second quarter. And in fact, we're trailing right now at 228 on the earnings front. So we actually think that earnings are going to continue to surprise. And I think the E earnings and the E start of employment tell us from an investment strategy perspective and an investor not an economist, but an investor, that the signs of, an, uh, of a recession to us are moot and moot. So you tell me mm-hmm. what kind of recession we're going to have. There's three types of recession. They all start with the letter C. So you tell me what kind of recession we're going to have. If the consumer strong, credit is strong, and capacity, we have nowhere near sign of overcapacity. So tell me what kind of recession we're going to have. So we're bullish, mm-hmm. and we think the earnings are going to come from financials, from healthcare, from communication services, Energy's been up as, uh, from a contribution of earnings side. And oh, by the way, tech, too, because I think the stable part of tech is where the earnings surprise ultimately is going to come from. Okay. 
Um, what if the consumer is weakening? I think some of the data would suggest that it is. What if the employment market is near, not nearly as strong as you suggest it is? If the jobs number, which was hot, is a lagging indicator, as the household survey, which Jan Hatzius cites, uh, is, is weakening. To your point, we haven't had a million pre-announcements, negative for earnings, but I find it hard to believe that they're going to be able to hold up to the, de- to the degree that you think they will. Why will they? Well, we've had a secular trend of not just since the great financial crisis, but really since the quote-unquote tech wreck when it kind of bombed out in, in 2022, or tw- 2002, I'm sorry. So for the last 20 years, Scott, we've had a secular trend of companies under-promising and over-delivering. And I think that same thing is going to hold true with respect to the, the amount of earnings surprise. With respect to the employment situation, we did revise the last two months, but the current month surprise of the upside. So we're going to focus on the last two months ago where the number was lower than actually. And we're not going to talk about the number this month that actually was better. So it's, you're feeding into the negativity. I'm telling you from an economic and macro perspective, I believe that investors are way too macro oriented and they're not focused on the overall stock market, which I think has done its job with respect to being discriminating with respect to taking out all the froth. So I believe that the secular bull market is very much in play. I think this cyclical bear market has provided a great opportunity to buy stocks, a generational opportunity to buy stocks. And then lastly, I'll tell you, that I believe that we have a 15 to 20% rally coming due to pent-up negativity with, I think, three things could happen. You could have a surprise print below 8%. That'll start the second derivative with respect to inflation. Then the next print under 7%, we'll have another, I think, another 5% upside. In any kind of positive resolution to the atrocities in Europe, we could have another 5 to 8% upside very quickly, even with the economy slowing. I think this is about the market recovering on a fundamental basis and not being as bad as everybody thinks it wow. is. All right. Well, I don't know. There's something that you come to, the, come to New York, you get at the NASDAQ, <laughs> you're all revved up, energetic. I love the, It's the city energy rubbing off on you, Belsky. It's different it when you're on the other cam at, at BMO. Well, I mean, listen, I, I, the, the office is right next door. I could pop over here. I know you have the rules. I can't be in studio, but next time I'll be in studio. But listen, you guys are all so bearish today. And in, 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 over the last week or so, I believe the bears have just doubled down on their view, Scott. And, and remember, when things go down, they always go down a little bit too far. When things go up, they go yeah. up a little bit too far. Yeah. And I think we've become way too bearish as a society. Okay. There's no doubt that Joe's right. We're going to have this U-shaped saucer shape type of recovery as we transition back into normalcy, Scott. It's not going to be the V, but that's okay. And I think that's why you need to be a stock picker. Okay. I mean, those are all fair points of view of, of yours. Uh, and I mean, that's what makes up the market. You've got some bears on the show. You've got some bulls on the show. And that's where we find ourselves, though. When I look at your call on financials, remember that time you were on? You said financials, 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 right? What you said were going to be the greatest, the greatest sector in the market times three. They haven't been. Yep. And now we have earnings. Now, yeah. now what? Well, so speak about earnings, right? The absolute level of earnings of the S&P 500 financial sector is greater now than before, before uh, the pandemic. 
at multiples that are excessively lower, not only price to earnings, but price to book. I think a lot of people have this PTSD with respect to financials when they begin to underperform and they automatically go back to what happened in 08, 09. This is an 08, 09. We're not talking about price to tangible book. We're talking about real book levels on very consistent earnings with CCAR results that were better than people expected. And these banks are buying back stock and they're paying dividends. Given the market where you don't want to be, I don't think, as cyclical now, you want to be more Garpy and value-oriented, Scott, you want to be in financials, especially my favorites, as you know, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, these companies that are in J.P. Morgan are throwing off dividends and buying back stock, these multi-divisional assets that have scalable businesses. We're going to stick with them, and they're our biggest positions with respect to financials. But now, Labenthal tells me I want to be in cyclicals. I'm, I'm, now I'm confused. Farmer Jim, you guys were in the same boat, and now he's, I don't even know what to make of this. So, he, Jim. Yeah. He says you don't well, want to be in cyclical stocks. Well, first off, I look at financials as cyclical, all right? And what's going to drive financials is loan demand, uh, growth in loan demand, which is going to be coming from the industrials, the materials, the energy companies that are all going to be feeding into the supply chain onshoring and infrastructure spending, which I know you think is fantasy, but I don't. Um, I want to start off, though, by complimenting Brian by not even unbuttoning his top button of his shirt, man. He is just handling today <laughs> with grace and aplomb. So well done. But, Brian, I do have a question for you. Hurry up. Question. All right. Um, if, if nominal growth is in the high single digits, doesn't that keep earnings high, which are measured in nominal terms? We don't measure earnings in real, in real growth. We measure it in nominal terms. Isn't that something the market's missing? Very much so. And the other thing that... Uh, it's missing in, ter- in terms of your supply chain and job side of things. You know, one of the things we have at BMO the opportunity to do is go around and talk to small and, and mid-sized private companies in the commercial banking side of our business is just booming because we're lending money because they want to grow. That is very, very strong for your case, Jim, in terms of being more cyclical, not only that, but also from a perspective of the supply chain and adding jobs. So I think things from a small mid-cap perspective, not only from the private area, but from the public area, I think is, is another asset class that I think could do very well the second half of the year. Brian, appreciate it very much, as always. We'll see you again soon. It's good to Thanks, have Scott. you uh, local. That's Brian Belsky joining us. And by the way, Jim, I don't think it's a fantasy. It's just I'm not grabbing my egg and cheese and running off to the Intel plant on Saturday morning to get there when the doors open. All right. You tell me when they open and I'll be there. Let's get the headlines now with Christina Partsinevelos. Christina. Thank you, Scott. What an animated panel. But here's our CNBC News update at this hour. The FDA is set to weigh over-the-counter sales of birth control pills after Paris-based HRA Pharma became the first company to apply to do so on Monday. The contraceptive pill is already available for sale in the United States with a prescription. HRA says the timing of the application just weeks after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade is a coincidence. Steve Bannon, who defied a congressional subpoena and and is set to go to trial on criminal contempt charges, told the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack he is now willing to testify. Bannon's reversal comes after his lawyer says he received a letter from former President Donald Trump waiving executive privilege. The Department of Justice is calling the reversal a, quote, stunt in order to avoid accountability. And the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is getting a new three-digit number starting July 16th. People will now be able to seek assistance by calling or texting 988. Again, 988 instead of the current 10-digit number. Health officials are making the move to broaden the lifeline's reach after the call center didn't connect with one in six callers. 
Halftime, we'll be back right after this. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. After hours, trading has slowly been growing in the last few years. But now, are you ready for an ETF for after hours trading? Our next guest says you should be. Bruce Levine is the CEO of NightShares. Recently launched the NightShares 500 ETF and the NightShares 2000 ETF. Both seek to capture value from the night effect. This is a phenomenon whereby overnight markets have outperformed the daytime trading sessions on a risk-adjusted basis. Bruce, I knew you when you were at Wisdom Tree. You've got a new company now. Uh, this is a whole new ballgame. Now, you're seeking to capture after-hour tradings in large-cap stocks. Explain how this works. What, what are you owning here, and what's the rationale for owning anything in after-hours trading? Thanks, Bob. So, look, this night effect is some really interesting research that most of the return historically has come overnight, and it's come with less volatility. So our ETFs are designed to be invested in the overnight session. We're buying at the close and selling at the open. And essentially during the day, we're sitting in cash and treasuries. So we sort of toggle on and off in a very different way. And it's the first ETF of its kind that way. You know, this, I have to say, this sort of goes contrary to what most financial advisors tell us, and that is that it's very risky to trade in the after hours uh, because of thinner volumes and you have wider bid-ask spreads. Is that not true or is it true, but you say it doesn't matter and it still outperforms? Well, the wrinkle here is that we're actually not trading in the after hours. We're buying at the close and selling at the open, so we're holding after hours. And for some you know, strange reasons that um, really no one's quite figured out, that seems to be the place you want to be invested. Now, why is there academic research that actually indicates that hold, doing what you're saying actually outperforms yes. doing the same thing during the open trading system? There's a lot of academic research. It goes back 20, 30 years, and it's very supportive, uh, very persistent, this anomaly. And... Uh, you know, we're, we're thrilled to be able to bring it to the market. This is a very interesting subject. We're going to have much more on this overnight trading and the NightShares ETF, whether it's right or not, coming up on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Plus, Strategus Research Partners Chairman Jason Trennert will join us to discuss asset allocation using ETFs. He's got one now. And what's behind his macro thematic ETF that launched earlier this year. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime returns right after this. All right, welcome back. Shares of Lululemon today down near 4%. Got downgraded today to underperform at Jeffrey's price target cut uh, as well, Joe, to 200 from 375. Mm-hmm. Pull forward during the pandemic. That's one of the principal concerns from yeah. this call. Street estimates and valuation too high. I read the whole report. Uh, 40% of people gained weight. That's a reason to take the price 
down to 200? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I completely disagree uh, with the report. Lululemon just reported, and I own Lululemon because this is a way for me to get exposure to consumer discretionary growth. They reported earnings at the beginning of June. That's 32% revenue growth, 10% traffic growth in store, 40% digital. Lululemon is an idiosyncratic growth story. It's being catalyzed by innovation. This is the actual one name. This is the actual one name, not the others, that's defying the deceleration that we're seeing in terms of comps. They're defined, but I mean, it can have everything that you just said, mm -hmm. but yet its rate of growth could slow from what it did during the pandemic. Would, it, would agree with that. Why wouldn't it? I would agree with that. And I think the- Give it time. I just say, give it time. Go ahead, Weiss. Give it time. It'll come Here down. Here it comes. Give it time. It'll come down. The, the landscape has been uh, more competitive. You know, I, I see people around, including my own family, wearing ALO instead of Lulu, buying it. Uh, it's something new. Uh, you had pent-up demand from people being shut in that went out to the malls. You know, again, we, you know, we take this, you know, we're juxtaposing time frames here. And you can't look at today and say it's going to be the future on one hand, then look on the future and say, hey, but today's not great. Look. It's a very high-priced retail company. It's oh. a very high-priced consumer company, and they will come down. The pricing umbrella and the valuation umbrella is dissipating. It's already dissipated. Steve, the valuation's so come down well. already. And by the way, it has come down, and it should come down more. So you don't buy stocks just because the value because the valuations come down. Do you think it'll trade it's lower than Nike? Think it's going to go. So you. Uh, I think it could. You're making the you're making the assumption. I think Nike Nike is fairly valued. I'm not so sure it is. They, right. they by the, the way, for so, the call, yeah. So I think for, there are issues. Sorry to sorry to interrupt you there. The, for, they prefer Nike. Right. We believe Lulu's fundamentals are likely to underwhelm ahead. That's part of this call. Right. So it, listen, and, and I respect Steve. Steve's been right. Okay. So Steve doesn't want to be anywhere uh, consumer oriented. Under Armour, Nike. Lululemon. I want to be somewhere. So again, I'm specifically targeting because of the innovation, because of the idiosyncratic growth, I'm targeting Lulu. And I disagree that Nike is the one on a valuation basis to own over Lulu because Lulu has come down enough that it trades at a slight premium. Yeah, I mean, Nike. it is more than 40 percent from its 52 uh, week high. All right, coming up, hedge funds at the half. Now they are, we'll find out how they're performing in the market right now, what's working and not working for them. We're following the money. Our Leslie Picker is next. All right, welcome back. We're taking a look now at how hedge funds have performed in the first half. Our Leslie Picker following the money, as she always does for us. Hi, Les. Hey, Scott. When it comes to hedge fund returns in 2022, the bigger firms are doing better on a fund-weighted basis. Hedge funds lost 5.9% during the first six months of the year, but on an asset-weighted basis that's skewed toward larger AUM, they actually generated average gains of 1.6%. Each measure, though, outperforming the S&P 500 by at least 14 percentage points. This, according to recent figures from HFR, which collates data on hedge fund performance, some of the world's largest hedge funds, including Bridgewater and Citadel, have seen a boon from trading, a diversified base of asset classes amid a plethora of geopolitical events and outsized volatility, especially on an intraday basis, as we've seen this year. They also have sizable quant franchises that can follow various markets without emotion or bias. These characteristics have served them well in the current environment, 
But contrast that with firms that were more heavily exposed to equities. Those that have seen outsized gains in recent years, like Tiger Global and Pershing Square, are falling back to earth and, at least in those two cases, are underperforming the S&P. That said, despite this wide disparity of returns this year, the average hedge fund across all 28 strategies uh, that HFR tracks is beating the S&P, including dividends. Scott? Supposed to earn those big fees at times like this, right, Leslie? (laughs) That's right. And then that's the hedge fund pitch, and that's the hedge fund pitch in recent years, that when markets are doing well, hedge funds that hedge do tend to underperform, but they can protect your downside in current environment. Yeah. Weiss, quickly, you, you watch this space closer than most. Yeah, uh, I'd say it's been tremendously disappointing, as it has been for the last, whatever, decade or so with hedge funds. They're not protecting your downside during turbulent times in the market and not rewarding you on the upside. So, look, you know, there are some that will continue to shine. I mean, uh, our friend Tepper is is killing it this year. I mean, he's up around 10 percent. So, so the good will continue to do well, but the others are just, you know, I want to say flashes in the pan or products of the bull market. We know the issues with Tiger Global uh, in terms of their (laughs) investing. Uh, So, look, Chase Coleman's brilliant. You can't take that from him, but they're not all weather funds. Conversely, you take Bridgewater, which is killing it this year, but I would say had at best mediocre performance over the last number of years. So bottom line is I think you're best off just investing in index funds or deciding that, Here's my asset allocation. I'm putting this with long only and forgetting about hedge funds. It's not about the fees. It's about your net return at the end. Mm. So I'm happy paying fees if I'm going to get the returns that I'm marketed for. You know, so so that's my view on hedge funds. Okay, we'll take another break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. Right, 4 o'clock Eastern. I hope you'll join me then. Ed Yardeni's got a new note out today. We've got Ed Yardeni. So you'll hear directly from him on what he thinks we've got at stake this week. Courtney Garcia, Bryn Talkington, and Kevin Simpson together. Bryn and Kevin both have a similar strategy of covered calls. So they are experts in that, and you will hear from them a few hours from now. I hope you'll join me then. Let's do some final trades, if we could. Liz Young, why don't you start us off? Small caps and a shock to absolutely no one, but specifically the S&P 600 small cap index, which is the more profitable portion of the universe. These stocks are trading at levels that have been since the 2008-2009 crisis, so attractive on valuations. Strong dollar also insulated from that in the small cap space. Okay. Uh, Farmer Jim was a little upset earlier. Seems to have Uh, gathered himself. He's got a big (laughs) smile on his face now. He's yelling at everybody. Go ahead. I thought I was yelling at Weiss. I, I wouldn't yell at this guy. I know. Um, anyway, I'm totally Wynn fine Resorts. with that. It's all good. <laughs> Win Resorts, it's down 9% today on this Macau shutdown. Hmm. The value of Win should have a zero value to Macau at this level. This is all on the Las Vegas and Boston operations, which are doing better than expectations. Okay. Thank you for that. Steve Weiss. I understand Jim being upset. I mean, if you and your Ivy League bourgeois friends couldn't get into LeBurn Den either, it would ruffle your feathers. Uh, look, my, my final trade is still shorting the XLF. Uh, I think it's prudent to take some protection out against financial holdings uh, when they report the end of this week. All right, Joe, what do you got? I've got Merck. Value, growth, 
doesn't matter. Offense, defense, healthcare is your solution. Special teams, you go with uh, Merck. Go with Merck. Healthcare. <laughs> all right, good stuff. I hope you'll all uh, join me in a few hours in uh, overtime. That does it for us here. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Imagine you're on a John Deere mower with a smooth ride, intuitive controls, and attachments for every season. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.